Hello, podcast listeners. This episode of News on the Fly is coming from Lockdown Central in Sydney. But the sun is still shining, Bunnings is still open and delivering, and let's face it, we're enjoying a bit of an extra sleep in at the moment because we don't have to commute to Travel Daily World headquarters each day. The COVID-19 craziness continues as the Delta and now Lambda variants wreak havoc. But at last we have a plan from the government, or at least a plan to develop a plan. But alongside all the immediate challenges, some in the industry are also working on long-term plans because there's no doubt that just like Arnold Schwarzenegger, travel will be back. We're just not sure when, but when it does happen, we need to be ready. There is so much going on, so let's get into it. From Travel Daily, I'm Bruce Piper. And I'm Anna Piper. And this is News on the Fly. Prime Minister Scott Morrison last week laid out a four-stage path back to post-pandemic normality. And while the move has been welcomed as a step forward, many are frustrated at the lack of a clear timeline for the industry, which really does need certainty. What's your take on the roadmap, Bruce? Yes, look, like a lot of people in the industry, I found it pretty disappointing. Um, It's very conservative. And as you mentioned, rather than a firm plan, it's more like a plan to develop a plan. Yes, there are four stages, but it's now going back to the almighty medicos and scientists to develop further advice, basically around the vaccination levels required to open borders for each stage. Stage four, which of course we're all looking forward to, would see no caps at all on international arrivals, no more quarantine at all for people who are vaccinated, and the open ability for Australians wanting to head offshore. But unfortunately, that nirvana appears to be a way off. At least there is now some sort of a pathway showing us how we're going to get there. And what's involved in that pathway? What are the other steps in the plan? The first stage does include some key positive things, including trialling home quarantine for vaccinated travellers, expanding pilot schemes for particular industries like education and some types of workers to bring more people in, and the creation of a digital vaccination record, basically a COVID-19 vaccine passport. Then, when we've got a certain proportion of the population vaccinated, of course subject to the health advice, we'll move to phase two, which would see a restoral of inbound arrivals and actual exemptions from lockdowns and border closures for vaccinated people. Stage three, there's travel bubbles, more travel bubbles, uh, suggested with Singapore and some Pacific destinations initially, and vaccinated Australians would be free to travel overseas. And then stage four is the ultimate, where things are relatively back to normal. And is there any time frame for all these stages? No, not at this stage. And as I mentioned, it's now off being tweaked by the boffins to come up with some sort of targeted timelines based on vaccination levels um, and, you know, the various new variants of the COVID. Um, I guess that's what really disappointed the industry, not to mention the cruise sector, which didn't even get a mention. However... There is some really good news in this announcement, kind of behind the scenes. I think we've got to read between the lines a bit and keep our chins up, not take it as a worst-case scenario. Because, in fact, all the governments across the country have signed onto this plan. And so, when those vaccination targets come back from the experts, they will have effectively already agreed to them. During an after webinar this week, Chairman Tom Mannering, who I thought would have been just as depressed as the rest of us about all this, said that after the announcement, he had his first good night's sleep in about a year. And that's because those actual vaccination targets to get us through these stages could potentially be quite low. 
And as we know, the current lockdowns are really seeing the rates of immunisations ramp up. Uh, someone I spoke to in the know suggested that the first target might be as low as 50% of people getting their first jab. Or it could be based on certain age cohorts having more vaccinations. Um, as I mentioned in Travel Bulletin recently, about 70% of people over 70 have had um, an immunisation. And so, you know, they're pretty much protected. So I don't think things are as grim as they perhaps feel. Mm. And if you are eligible for vaccination and are yet to sign up for an appointment, we really encourage you to do so. On a personal note, I also work as a registered nurse, so I've had both my COVAX doses and I can really vouch for it being a very easy, very smooth and fairly painless process. And so I just really encourage you to sign up and please help out our community in getting travel back on track. In other key industry news, consumer group Choice has this week released a major report on the travel sector, urging a number of significant reforms to Australian consumer protection based on the experience of thousands of travel customers through the pandemic. The report slammed the behaviour of some parts of the industry, particularly in the early stages of COVID-19, but it also highlighted the actions of other travel agents and suppliers who bent over backwards to help their clients. So, Bruce, what has been the early reaction to this report? Uh, Look, this report's only just been released, but I think the industry would have to admit that it could be much, much worse. And I think that that reflects some of the mostly unsung hard work that organisations like AFTA, Cato and Clear have been doing behind the scenes, not, not to mention managing all the other impacts of the pandemic. This report certainly does reflect the bad experiences that a lot of consumers had, um, particularly getting refunds, etc., etc., in those early days. But there's also actually heaps of examples in the report where people praised their travel agents for how they managed to get refunds and credits organised. But clearly choice is still demanding change. So what are they suggesting needs to happen? Look, overall, they're recommending better consumer protection when it comes to travel. Some of the things are you know, pretty taken for granted, like easier ways to get refunds, minimum rights when it comes to vouchers and credits, which we pretty much already have in terms of the ACCC guidance that got issued last year. They're also asking for a mandatory industry code for all airlines and large travel, for travel providers, which small operators could also sign on to. They'd like a national website showing travel restrictions. Well, duh, why the heck don't we have that already? Um, And they're also calling for a mandatory information standard given to customers at the time of booking. Now, you know, they're saying that this is all quite radical, but, you know, for the industry, all of that's pretty much in place now, particularly with Cato developing its standard industry terms and conditions last year. Oh, Choice is also calling for an ACCC market study into the travel and tourism sector. Not sure what that means, but, you know, any sort of study can't hurt. The big ticket item they're asking for is the introduction of a travel and tourism industry ombudsman so that complaints have somewhere to be escalated to. But that's not a bad idea, and they are suggesting that this would be funded by the government. Perhaps one day to be industry funded, but initially it's the government's problem. And if these reforms are accepted, how would they actually happen? Would there be legislation involved, and what sort of time frame could we see? Well, because of Australia's model of competitive federalism, it's basically a joint federal and state responsibility. And and as we've seen right through this pandemic, collaboration between all of our different levels of government is something that works really well and smoothly. Not. Look, it's basically the responsibility of the consumer affairs ministers from all of the states and territories, as well as the feds. And I think we'll end up being some sort of tweak to the Australian consumer law. It's a fair way off, I reckon, because of that. But 
look, the choice report puts it on the agenda. The really good thing for the industry about this report is that it kind of collates all of the anti-agent feedback that's been circulating on those nasty Facebook groups into one place, and it's a pretty rational response. Clearly, it's good if we can build confidence in travel. Look, I know there were some missteps in the early stages of the pandemic, but as it grinds on, we're in a much better place, I think, at least when it comes to most wholesalers, with a few exceptions. The July issue of Travel Bulletin is out now, and in the cover story, we're asking the question that all agents will soon have to consider. To fee or not to fee? Should travel agents charge their customers service fees? As Qantas cuts commission and with others potentially to follow, this month's cover story is a deep dive into travel agency fee structures and what the future may hold. Plus, explore Europe on a cruise with celebrity and much more. Read it all in the July issue of Travel Bulletin at travelbulletin.com.au or just follow the link in our show notes. Council of Australian Tour Operators, or CATO, has entered a new era, last month holding an extraordinary general meeting which unanimously approved a new legal structure as well as a revised constitution, which controversially removed the previous requirement for members to be ATAS accredited. The move was heralded as a coming of age for the organisation. So why have these changes been introduced, Bruce? Look, Cato has really changed in recent years. For a long, long time, it was a very collegial group of destination experts. But about four years ago, things got serious. Um, they put up their fees uh, you know, to have more resources in the organisation, became very much more focused on professionalism. And I guess it's been a bit of a reflection of the changing travel industry. The rise of the internet has increasingly led to that big word, disintermediation, meaning that tour operators are much more visible in terms of being accessible to consumers directly. And of course, they were also riding a boom in travel, which was seeing ever more new destinations being discovered by tourists, each requiring you know, specialists or providing opportunities for specialist operators. Anyway, this move is kind of Cato growing up. The new structure is a not-for-profit company limited by guarantee, which notably enables the organisation to set up commercial subsidiaries and have a national structure. Wait, what sort of subsidiaries? What are they actually up to? Well, the first thing they've announced is a partnership with TravelPay, which will see an alternative to the eNet EFT payment platform, which is being phased out. It's a very clever deal, which means that there's still going to be a payment solution for agents to pay wholesalers and tour operators when ENET shuts down in September, you know, and to do that cost effectively. Uh, but it's also my guess that Cato will get a tiny clip of each transaction, which will definitely help with its long-term financial sustainability. I'm not sure what actual entity that it is going to work through, but I presume that it's one of these wholly controlled subsidiaries that they're able to set up now in line with the new structure. The other one they flagged at this stage is an offshoot called CETO, S-E-T-O, which stands for Student Educational Travel Organisation. There's not much detail about this at the moment. Um, it's going to be a subgroup of Cato members because a significant of the number of them actually specialise in school groups. Um, watch this space. I'm sure they'll be announcing stuff shortly. Huh. And the new Cato constitution removes the requirement for ATAS accreditation. Does this signal a major split with AFTA? Look, it's not a major split and definitely neither organisation would want it to be seen that way, but it is definitely a recognition that the ATAS scheme developed around travel agents really isn't ideal for tour operators, and I'm sure AFTA would admit that too. 
So instead, Cato says it's going to develop its own fit-for-purpose accreditation scheme administered by an external third party, so there's nothing, you know, people submitting their figures won't be worried about competitors seeing them. They also say they're going to work with insurers to try to create a Cato consumer protection program. All very good stuff, particularly given the scrutiny the industry is under due to that choice report we just talked about. Look, there is definitely concern among Cato members that they might be seen to be pulling out of accreditation altogether, but that's definitely not the case. They're just going to do their own thing. And in fact, with ATAS at the moment in this very sensible monitor and support mode, where basically there's no actual financial verification or insolvency checks of members being done, it's probably a good time for Cato members to go their own way in terms of developing their own program instead. So will all the Cato members be leaving after now? Oh, no, definitely not. Uh, In fact, as most of our listeners would realise, lots of companies in travel actually operate in a number of different sectors. Um, You know, for example, someone like Bunnick Tours. Um, Dennis Bunnick is chairman of Cato, but as well as operating a large outbound international touring company, they've got a retail travel agency, actually a Magellan member in Adelaide, so they fit in two camps. Similarly, someone like Colette or the Travel Corporation or Globus, um, we mostly know them for their tours around the world for outbound passengers from Australia because that's what they market locally. But they're also significant inbound operators bringing tourists to Australia from other markets and running holidays here. And so they're also part of ATEC, the Australian Tourism Export Council. So many, many Cato members have multiple hats. They'll still be members of AFTA, but they'll probably end up with a more appropriate accreditation scheme which suits the different parts of their businesses. And as we wrap up this episode of the podcast, has there been any other big stuff over the last couple of weeks that we haven't had time to cover? Actually, there are a couple of things. The first one was an announcement at Flight Centre that they're giving all of their staff, uh, apart from the senior executives, a bonus in the form of shares as long as they stick around for a while. There is lots of concern in the industry about a brain drain in the current environment, and it's going to be hard to attract talent back in once things pick up again. So this is a good move by Flight Centre, which aims to recognise that it's pretty tough for those who are hanging in there, particularly those who in previous times made pretty good livings based on the amount of sales they were making. And how long do they have to stay to get the shares? Uh, well, they've got to be the company, be still with the company on the 31st of December 2022, so about another 18 months at least. And then the bonus shares, I think it's about 250 shares per person, who knows what they'll be worth by then, they can then be converted into flight centre shares after they announce their results in February 2023. Okay, and what was the other thing that you wanted to mention? Oh yes, a couple of industry appointments. One of them at Hello World, where Nick Cole has been named as Head of Retail and Commercial, basically pretty much 2IC on that side, to CEO Andrew Burns. Nick only became part of Hello World in December. He was previously interim CEO at CruiseCo, which Hello World bought, and then he became, for a short time, head of the whole Hello World cruise wholesale operations. Hello World did make a big fuss about his experience, particularly in digital transformation. Before CruiseCo, he was at Fairfax for a long time, involved with um, offshoot businesses like Domain and Stays, I think. So clearly, Hello World believes that's highly relevant. The other appointment is a restructure at Club Med, which has seen Rachel Harding, the head of the local business, get a major promotion to, uh, you know, pretty much a global role. She's really well known to the industry and is a lovely lady. Um, Before joining Club Med about three years ago, she was Trafalgar's national sales manager, so everyone knows her. And since then, she's provided over significant growth at Club Med while also doing an MBA. Anyway, now she's going to be basically head of half the world for Club Med. Um, The region's called East, South Asia and Pacific, including Australia and New Zealand, but also a whole lot of other markets and reporting directly to the 
CEO Henri Giscard d'Estaing, and she'll be relocating to Shanghai to take up the new position. Wow, quite the Wonder Woman. Well, congratulations, Rachel, from everyone in the Travel Daily family. We know you're going to be amazing. That's all we have time for in this episode. Thank you again to our faithful listeners. We so appreciate your support. You can help us out by rating, reviewing and sharing the podcast. Uh, That just really helps your industry colleagues to find us too. And don't forget to vent your spleen on our WhatsApp tip line. The number is in the show notes. We will be back soon with more news on the fly.